You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, Our guest today is William Cope Moyers, who is currently Vice President for External Affairs at Hazleton Foundation in Minnesota, one of the premier treatment centers in the world. Um, William Cope is a former newspaper journalist and writer for CNN. Uh, He's the author of a great book called Broken, which um, we will be talking about. And he he and his wife and three children live in St. Paul, Minnesota. Welcome, William. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Mary, for having me on your program and helping me to carry the message of hope and help to other people. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, There's so many things that we could talk about. I was wondering if we could begin to talk a little bit about the first time that I met you. It was here in New Hampshire, and we were doing uh, an advocacy work around the stigma that people in recovery face or people with addiction face. And I thought maybe that would be a good place to begin because in those days we were talking about stigma and now we were talking a little bit more about discrimination. So I was wondering if you'd like to expound on that a bit. Well, you you know, Mary, you've been working in the field uh, longer than I have and, and you know well the, the, the challenges that addicted people have in terms of getting help uh, for themselves or the challenges that family members have in getting help for their loved ones. The reality is... is that uh, stigma, discrimination, shame, fear, whatever you want to call it, is is virulent uh, when it comes to the disease of addiction, oftentimes because uh, people don't understand that it is an illness, uh, that it's a disease of the mind, the body, and the spirit. Too often people think that alcoholics and addicts are bad people or lack moral fiber or lack religion or uh, were born and raised on the other side of the tracks. Uh, and so you have both public perception and you have sort of private shame uh, around this illness that, that combine in such a way that people who need help don't get it, either because they're scared to ask for it, they're fearful, they're ashamed, or they reach out and they ask for help and they can't get it because society doesn't see this as a treatable illness, uh, as, as one that has an outcome other than death. And... Um, and so what we've been battling for years, I know you've been in the forefront of this, as I have been here, uh, to try to overcome that stigma by getting people in recovery to stand up and speak out, getting professionals to talk about the reality that addiction is a disease that does not discriminate, um, to talk about the fact that treatment works in recovery as possible, and, and, and ultimately that what we're talking about here is the number one health problem in this country, uh, untreated alcoholism, untreated drug dependence, is a problem that all of us have to deal with. It doesn't. It's not endemic just to inner city communities. It's not uh, just something that affects people of color, whatever color that is. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that this is a uh, an illness that doesn't discriminate, and, and we in this country need to stand up and speak out to put a human face not just on the problem, but also on the solution. And there is a solution, and I think that is part of um, the myth that, that surround addiction and substance abuse because um, what we see are the train wrecks. What we see in the newspaper are the Britney Spears and the Lindsay Lohans and the other folks that their addiction is constantly in the news. And we don't, recovery doesn't seem to be good fodder for um, news. I mean, the fact that somebody recovers and does well just doesn't seem to make it on the headline news. No, there's been there's been somewhat of a, a, a shift in 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 the news media's awareness of the solution. Recently there was a front page story in the New York Times talking about um, the recovering communities that are flourishing in in Florida. Um, we are starting to see uh, reports in the news about the fact that treatment does work, uh, that recovery is possible, and that when people like me, for example, recover, everybody benefits from that. But I think by and large you're, you're right. Typically, the news media focuses on the problems caused by addiction and and usually focuses just on the problems of the rich and famous or the down and out, when in fact, 
Uh, this illness is one that doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter. It doesn't care whether you're an actress from Southern California or a waitress uh, from Boston. Uh, you know, this is an illness that uh, nobody is immune to, and we need to start seeing it that way so that we can recognize that when people do get treatment, they recover and they go back to being productive members of their families. They go back to being employable. They pay taxes. Um, they obey the law. Uh, they go back to being human again. And most importantly, they vote, which is something that I think gets kind of lost in the shuffle, is that there are a lot of silent people out there who need to come forward and vote, um, people in recovery, people who, like myself, who have been in this profession for a long time. And um, for all the reasons that you said, we tend to be silent instead of going out and um, saying, you know, we have needs and this is a chronic illness and people are being discriminated against. It's, you know, just like heart disease, I know a lot of people that have had major heart um, problems. They've been told to go to cardiac rehab. They've been told to quit smoking. They've been told to exercise. And they don't do any of those things. But when they have another heart attack, they're considered a medical emergency and they get, you know, premier care. And there's a double standard when it comes to addiction and substance use disorders. It's the same process in getting better as someone with other chronic illnesses but they're not given the same opportunity. You're right. And, and, and you know, the, uh, diseases like uh, breast cancer or cancer in general or HIV AIDS or depression, those were stigmatized illnesses over the generations. And one reason why they no longer are uh, cloaked in uh, shame and public intolerance and public indifference, why they're no longer cloaked in the stigma, if you will, is, is because... People who have or have had those illnesses uh, and their families have been willing to stand up and speak out. That's why you have a March for the Cure as it relates to breast cancer. It's why the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill has been so good at uh, getting people with depression and eating disorders and bipolar disorder to, to stand up and speak out. Um, even HIV-AIDS is an illness that has a lot more public understanding uh, these days than it did in the 1980s and 1990s. Why? Because people who struggle with HIV/AIDS and their families and their communities have taken to the streets at times to put a face, an accurate face, a human face, on the problem and the fact that um, people who struggle with those illnesses, just like those who struggle with addiction, are they look like us. And that's so important because what they also say is. I have HIV or I have breast cancer, and I deserve to live, and I deserve to get better. And that is just, that's made all the difference. And while we're beginning to see it in the addiction community um, with Faces and Voices in Recovery and some of our other advocacy groups, um, NADAC and NCADD, um, there's still <clears throat> part of the perception um, for a lot of people in recovery is they're violating some type of trust or tradition if they come forward and talk about being in recovery. That's right. We, we've been part of the problem. Um, we who have recovered uh, oftentimes hide behind our recoveries, in part because we go back to, to looking, quote, normal, close quote. We, you know, we're no longer living under bridges. We're no longer getting arrested. We're no longer uh, finding ourselves unemployable. We're engaged again. We're healthy. And you wouldn't know looking at us that we are addicts and alcoholics because while there is no cure for addiction, there is a solution. The solution is treatment and recovery. And when we recover, we, we look okay again. We act okay. We behave. And, and, and so part of our problem is the fact that we don't stand up and speak out. And maybe during our next segment, we can talk a little bit more about how we can get people to stand up and speak out. Um, We'll be right back with our guest, William Pope Moyers. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out. And you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is William Cope Moyers. And in our last segment, we were discussing the stigma and discrimination that people and families with who experience addiction and substance use disorders face when uh, even when they're experiencing it, when they go for treatment, when, after they've gotten into recovery, and, um, and how hard it is for people who are in recovery and for families who are in recovery to come forward and, and talk about uh, their experiences, but that is in effect what we need people to do in order to change how people are treated and the availability of treatment. And William, um, you're the vice president for external affairs at Hazelden Foundation, and in talking about stigma and discrimination, over the years our treatment um, infrastructure has kind of diminished as opposed to flourished. And was wondering um, what your experience has been going around the country as you speak to different. Uh, people about uh, treatment availability. Well, you're right, Mary. I mean, options for people who need help uh, are shrinking in this country, not uh, growing. It's a it's a tragedy uh, that people who have alcoholism or drug dependence can't get the help they need and deserve. Uh, oftentimes, when they do, they have to settle for something less than what they clinically or medically need. In other words, they may get a couple of outpatient visits when, in fact, what they need is residential treatment, or they may get a few days of residential treatment when, when what they really need is extended care. The reason for that is because the resources are just not there. Uh, treatment programs are the exception rather than the rule in America today, and that's due in part to the fact that the public doesn't believe that treatment works and recovery is possible. It's due to the fact that um, resources are being primarily uh, invested in tough law enforcement and intervention uh, in terms of the war on drugs and not in, in, in the areas of prevention and research and treatment. Uh, I, in my role at Hazel, and, uh, do travel all over the country, and I see some really good programs and in places like New Hampshire and, and Massachusetts and, and Minnesota and in Texas and California, there are a lot of good programs around, but but they are the exception rather than the rule. And, and in my role here at Hazel, I'm oftentimes an advocate for people who are trying to access our our treatment. And one irony of it is, is even though many of them have health care insurance, their insurance won't pay for uh, for treatment. That's just 
wrong. That's discrimination, and it needs to change. Uh, so whether you are coming at this from the public sector uh, or from the private sector, the sad reality is that there are just not enough options uh, for people who need and deserve help. I was talking to the CEO of Gosnold on Cape Cod last week, and he was saying how um, patients will come in thinking that they have the uh, insurance benefit, but they don't have access to the benefit. So um, it may take two or three appeals, and even after that, uh, the patient still isn't able to access their benefit. And um, When I first met you, it was right after you and your, your family did um, Warriors on Addiction, and um, you had decided to come forward as a, as a private person um, and publicly talk about your own substance abuse addiction and recovery, and that must have taken a lot to make that decision. And well, you, you know, people have said that, Mary, that, you know, that was quite brave of you or admirable of you, and, and maybe, maybe it was. I didn't feel that. Um, when I, quote, came out in 1998 as a recovering person, um, at that time I had about four years of sobriety. Today I have 13 years. Um, when I came out, I... Uh, I did it because um, I needed to be an example of how it works and why it works. Uh, you know, I did the treatment four times over five years between 1989 and 1994. Um, I finally took personal responsibility for managing my chronic disease as a person in long-term recovery, and here I am all these years later. But in my role as an advocate at Hazelden, uh, I figured that the that in the spirit of Winston Churchill, who once said, the scariest thing about being a leader is looking over your shoulder and seeing that nobody is following. And I, I figured if I was going to be a leader in my role at Hazelden and getting people to stand up and speak out, I'd better do it by example. Uh, I didn't see it as a courageous or bold move. I saw it as a necessary move. Uh, I'm glad I did it because by standing up and speaking out, I've, I've discovered that there are thousands of other people like me who are willing to stand up and speak out. I think it was from that experience in the late 1990s that Faces and Voices of Recovery was birthed. It's now the leading advocate organization in the country around addiction, treatment, and recovery issues. And as I said earlier, what's been most reassuring to me is that by, when I stand up and speak out, I become a beacon of hope for other people who don't know where to turn when they struggle with alcoholism because of the shame and the stigma. There aren't very many publicly accessible people who do stand up and speak out. So... I stood up and spoke out in part because it was the right thing to do. I did it because I wanted to lead by example. Uh, but the best impact uh, that has had is is, is being a, a person who is seen as a recovering person who others can turn to when they need help. Well, and the power of example is so important for um, other people in recovery. It's, it's so, it gives hope. I think my experience has been um, because we have often used different segments of Moyers on Addiction and um, and seeing, having families see parts of, of that series and say, wow, there is hope. You know, other families like mine go through this. And um, that, to me, has been just a great thing. And I think that, you know, through your travels, you're such a well-spoken advocate for treatment, but also for um, just the pride in being in recovery. And that, that to is like great because I see people in recovery and then they they have these wonderful lives but they're afraid to share it with people and, uh, and, and one of the reasons why people are sh afraid is because of the shame and the stigma and I understand some of that I mean if, you know it's, it's easier for me to stand up and speak out Mary because I work for a treatment provider Hazel and that is and that's part of my role and I'm not going to be punished or there aren't going to be consequences to my standing up and speaking out because I work for an organization that treats people and recognizes the importance of, of advocacy. Um, but part of the reason why people in recovery don't stand up and speak out is, as you alluded to earlier, they don't think that they can because they're in 12-step programs that emphasize anonymity. The reality is that if you're in a 12-step program such as Alcoholics Anonymous or or Narcotics Anonymous or Al-Anon, Overeaters Anonymous, you can stand up and speak out. You just don't need to do it as a, a person who's a member of that group. I, for example, stand up and speak out all the time, and I never reveal my participation in uh, my program of recovery uh, that, for me, includes the 12 steps, hint, hint. 
Um, I just do it as an addicted person in recovery who got well through four treatments. And, and that's, that's all I leave it at. Um, anybody can stand up and speak out and still honor those traditions of anonymity as long as they don't speak for or about that program of recovery that they depend on. And that's, that's a very subtle difference that a lot of people have struggled with over the years. It's tricky. I, I understand why it's tricky. Uh, and I also understand people who don't want to uh, stand up and speak out because they might have fear of retribution or some other consequences. They may be early in their recoveries, and I think people who are early in their recoveries need to focus on their recoveries and not focus on standing up and speaking out and becoming advocates. Um, but at the same time, if we want to smash the stigma of addiction, if we want to promote the power and possibility of recovery, those of us who have been through that process must stand up and speak out. And to that end, I think one of the most effective vehicles to do that is through faces and voices of recovery. If someone currently is listening and is in recovery and would like to lend their voice to this effort, how would they, how would they go about it? Well, they can contact you. Um, you know, you, you you've been doing you've been good at, at directing people and in to, to a point where they become advocates. They can contact me at the Hazelden Foundation. I'm really easy to find on the internet. Or, as I said, they can go to facesandvoicesofrecovery.org, and they can sign up to become a, a champion for recovery in their own communities. And I I think um I think we need to that needs to happen. You know. You talked earlier about insurance coverage for addictions treatment and the fact that people might have health care insurance, but it won't cover what they need when it comes to accessing a place like Hazelden. I work for an organization where a not-for-profit. We extend about $5 million a year in patient aid, and most of that patient aid goes to employed middle-class people with private health care insurance. Now, that's wrong. I mean, it's good that we give that coverage, give that patient aid, but somebody's insurance ought to cover it. And it's only when um, people stand up and speak out and complain about the fact that insurance won't cover it. When they stand up and speak out and say, this is the result of good treatment. Here I am in recovery. It's only when we take action that we're going to see the results that we need. Right. And in the meantime, insurance companies pay bigger dividends at, um, at the expense of people who need treatment. And it's just not addiction treatment. It's all kinds of treatment. But That's right. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, you know, I think that um, when when we think about people standing up and being advocates and making the change, is there are there other things that people can do besides? I mean, should they go to their town hall and just you know register to vote? What what are the things that people can do to make a difference? Well, they can register to vote and make sure that when they when they contact their candidates that they they let those candidates know whether they be presidential candidates or mayoral candidates, town hall candidates. Let them know that they care about issues around addiction, treatment, and recovery. Um, I think giving personal testimony in your in your church or your synagogue or your mosque, I think that's very important because churches are hotbeds for social change and, and community dialogue. I think um, people ought to, you know, share with their members of their book club or as I said, their church or somewhere else in their community, share your own experience with addiction and recovery. I have this sort of call to action. I say to people in recovery, if you're a person in recovery, share that with somebody who does not know it. If you're the family member of somebody who has struggled with addiction or hopefully experienced recovery, share that with somebody in your community who does not know it. If you're a fam- if you're a, a, a professional who works in this field, treating people like me, start to talk about your successes. And finally, I say to everybody, engage the media and engage politicians and let them know when they do a good job on a story or an issue around addiction and let them know when they don't do such a good job uh, through that uh, as well. Um, Minnesota has been uh, great in spawning two very good advocates, um, our former uh, Senator Paul Wellstone and our current representative Jim Ramstead who have been strong advocates for people in addiction. We'll be right back to talk with uh, more with William Cope Moyers, and we'll discuss his book and why he chose to write it.
You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranisi's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is William Cope Moyers. And um, I think it was 2006 that uh, I saw you in Washington, and you had just written your book, Broken, My Story of Addiction and Redemption. And having worked in this profession for a number of years, I've read a lot of autobiographies. And I have to say, William, that this is probably one of the better written ones that I've, that I've read uh, it was like it was like sitting there talking to you. I, when I was reading it, it felt very personal and very. Um, you seemed very connected to what you were writing, and it didn't seem to be in the third person, and it just seemed to be a very big part of you. And um, what made you decide to write a book? Well, I appreciate the endorsement, Mary. Um, you know, the book is really just an extension of my life's work at Hazelden. To carry the message of hope and help to others, I've been doing it for 11 years at Hazelden. Uh, I've been doing it, in, you know, testifying in state legislatures and Congress at conventions, conferences, churches, Rotary clubs, and so on. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. It's and I used my own story as a vehicle to do that sort of public policy and advocacy work. The book uh, was sort of a more in-depth. Uh, more detailed, uh, more emotional um, exercise in in carrying that message. Uh, you know, it's a 385-page book. There's a lot to be learned learned in those pages about addiction, about treatment, and about recovery. Uh, and um, so, I really wrote the book just to help other people, or that was what my hope was. Um, I had no idea, frankly, that it would that it would reverberate across the country like it has. It, it did make the New York Times bestseller list in the fall of 06, and now the paperback is out and it's doing very well. And, and I, I think the reason for that is, 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 is a direct reflection on the public's desire to understand addiction, uh, what it is and what it isn't, to understand the re- treatment and recovery process uh, because this is such a misunderstood problem in this country addiction so the book is, has made a big difference I think in a lot of people's lives including my own it, it's, it's validated the journey that I've been on now for 13 plus years as a recovering person um, I, one of the powers of the book and the reason why I think it does reverberate so strongly with, with readers is that I rely 
a lot on journal entries. I've, I've been very good over the decades at keeping journals, and I kept prolific journals from the moment I hit bottom in New York City in 1989, you know, through my recovery in 1994, 95, and so on. And I think those journal entries, which were written in psych wards and treatment centers and when I was relapsing and when I was struggling to stay sober, I think those journal entries really were add a lot of texture and, and real-time experience to the memoir genre. The other thing that I, I think has been very potent in the in the book has been my, the letters from my father and, to a lesser extent, my mother. My parents have been integral in my life, um, and, of course, they were as afflicted with my illness as I was because this is a disease that hurts much more than just the person who has it. It hurts the people who love that person. Uh, and so the letters from my father, there's 12 or 13 letters in the book that he gave me permission to use which were written in the 1980s and 1990s. And I think those letters have really connected with a lot of other uh, parents and grandparents and sisters and brothers and spouses of people who are addicted. And a lot of people have gleaned much insight uh, from my father's perspective as much as from mine. Right. Um, you had mentioned earlier that you uh, accessed treatment four times before you finally... Um, kind of took responsibility for your own yes. recovery. And, and I think that's a very common experience. And um, could you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think so many times, I know when families come to my treatment center, they expect, you know, well, you know, take them for 30 days and fix them, and then everything will be okay. And can you just talk about the process of, of treatment? Sure. I mean, there are a lot of people who do go to treatment one time and stay sober for the rest of their lives, a day at a time. Uh, and kudos to them. One of them is my wife, Allison, who's been recovering from her alcoholism uh, since 1989, since the day she walked into treatment at Hazelhead in June of 89. My wife has been clean and sober ever since. So there are a lot of people who make it the first time. But because of the chronic nature of the illness, and because this is an illness that convinces people that either that they don't have it or they can prescribe the remedy of their, on their own, uh, because of the cunning, baffling, and powerful nature of the illness, oftentimes people discover that despite good treatment, uh, they relapse uh, either because they need more treatment or because they're not yet willing to work the program that they've been given in treatment. Just like the diabetic who doesn't want to take their insulin uh, and suffers consequences as a result, treatment centers and families can't make alcoholics and addicts get sober or stay sober unless those people want to be part of the chronic disease management. So for hard-headed people like me, whose alcoholism was quite progressive, um, I had to learn the hard way, if you will, of four treatments over five years, once in 1989, once in 1991. I had three years of continuous recovery after that, and then I relapsed in the summer of 94 and finally got sober at a treatment program in Atlanta called Ridgeview in 1994, the, the fall of 94, because this is a chronic disease. That doesn't excuse it, but it helps to explain why uh, even the best treatments aren't going to be effective if the patient isn't willing to be part of the treatment and recovery process. Well, I think sometimes, um, I know as a, a treatment provider, we make the assumption that because someone's in treatment, they want to be sober, when the reality of it is they might just want to keep their job or they might just want to keep their family um, together or, you know, they've come to treatment with for a whole different reason than what we think. It's not really because they want to be sober. They just want to, they just want to kind of maintain what they have. Well, you have to be motivated. That's exactly right. I mean, and, and motivated to, to see beyond um, the immediate consequences or the immediate reward. I mean, addiction is a disease that doesn't have a cure. There is a solution, treatment, recovery, but there's no cure. And there are only two outcomes with this illness, recovery or death. <laughs> you know, I mean, some people may be lucky enough to end up in institutions for the rest of their lives, like prison or mental institution. But the fact of the matter is, is this is a terminal illness. If you don't recover from it, you die, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Uh, 
and even the best treatment programs, such as Hazelden and your program there, I mean, they're not going to work if the, if the patient isn't willing to work it. It's very easy to stop drinking or taking drugs. I've done it a thousand times. It's hard to stay stopped. And to stay stopped, you have to not only go to treatment, but you have to work the program of recovery in managing the chronic disease 30 days, 90 days, 5 years, 20 years after you've been to treatment. Because, you know what, I've been clean and sober for for more than 13 years now, since October of 94. I've still got the disease of alcoholism. It just happens to be in remission. And I keep it in remission by my program of recovery, which for me means regular participation in meetings, connecting with my higher power, God, hanging out with other recovering alcoholics and addicts, uh, and all the other things that we're given to do. And when we, when we think about somebody going to treatment for four times, it's not uncommon for somebody with diabetes to be hospitalized four, six, eight times over the course of their lifetime, um, or somebody with heart disease to be hospitalized a number of times. So the concept of, um, you know, multiple treatment episodes should be, should be the norm rather than, um, you know, the, you know, having people feeling shamed because they have to go back to treatment or they, or they decide to go back to treatment. That's right. The goal for any treatment center ought to be to, to treat the man or the woman um, in an effective way so that when they come out of treatment, they stay sober for the rest of their lives, a day at a time. But, but as you noted, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, asthma, uh, cancer, or addiction, uh, you know, it's it's more about striving for recovery, knowing that oftentimes that process will include uh, flare-ups of the condition uh, or relapses, uh, but that a relapse is not a reason for the person to give up or for everybody else to give up on that person. Oftentimes, relapses can be some of the most critical, teachable moments which help people understand the cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient nature of the disease. Well, and, you know, I think from, this is just my perspective, but I think our treatment um, profession has kind of done people a disservice because I was taught early on that if someone relapsed in treatment, then they needed to be out of treatment. They needed to be um, thrown out or discharged or whatever. And when I think about stigma and I think about discrimination, I think sometimes as a provider we've done our share of discriminating as well because when someone has a heart condition and they haven't gone to heart rehab, they don't get told when they come to the emergency room, you didn't go to rehab so you're not going to treat your heart attack. So I, I, from my perspective, I think that we... Treatment providers have done uh, patients and clients a real disservice by saying, well, if you can't stay sober, you can't be in treatment. That's right. I mean, we have pretty stringent guidelines at Hazelden. Um, if somebody relapses while on campus and they don't want to go back through detox and go back to the program, then we have to discharge them. That We don't throw them out on the street. We refer them on to another program where they might be more appropriate um, patients. Uh, but you know, you know, you can't tolerate in a treatment center. The stakes are pretty high: life and death, wellness or illness. And for the sake of the other patients, you can't have patients, uh, you know, showing up and, and, and going to treatment who who don't want to do what they're told. And and that includes staying sober. Uh, on the other hand, because it is a chronic disease, you just don't want to throw them out on the street either and say, "Well, good luck," uh, because. Uh, the only definition of failure is not trying. And, you know, part of relapse is, is learning from the mistakes uh, that we make uh, and, and to continue to try to get and stay sober. So it is a process. It, it, it's not, treatment is not an end all. In fact, it's just the beginning of the journey. Right. And recovery is a process. And um, there are milestones and there are valleys in, in that process. And I think that, you know, as as people recover, you get to you get to understand that it's just not all one big good time. The recovery does have a a fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, we're talking with William Cope Moyers, who is Vice President for External Affairs at Hazelton Foundation in Minnesota. Um, when you wrote the book, what what did you learn about yourself? Well, it was people have asked me, was it a cathartic experience? I don't know if it was cathartic, but I certainly learned a lot about myself because, as I should have, because anytime we go back and we look at the journey that we've been on, we we tend to discover mileposts on that journey that we might not have seen uh, earlier or perhaps saw differently. Um, I learned about myself that um, I'm a complicated kind of guy, <laughs> that um, I was in a lot of denial uh, back in the uh, late 70s and through the 1980s about what ailed me. Um, I, I, I looked back and truly come to understand and appreciate my utter powerlessness over this this illness called addiction. That's not an excuse. I take full responsibility for voluntarily ingesting legal and illegal substances into my body. Nobody made me do that when I was a teenager or when I was a young adult. But what I didn't know back then is that I had a brain that processes alcohol and other drugs differently so that when you put those substances into my body, it tends to react in a way that um, is not not typical of 90% of the rest of the population, the point being that roughly one in 10 of us uh, is addicted in America, according to the government. So I've looked back on all of those experiences and realized just how much stigma there was even in my own perception and in the, in the perceptions of my family, who, who with the benefit of hindsight have all come to understand a lot of the warning signs that we overlooked, that we ignored, because we just could not have imagined that what was ailing me, what was troubling me, what was causing me to struggle so much in the 70s and 80s was about alcoholism and drug dependence because I didn't look like one of those kind of people, if you know what I mean. So so looking back on all that, I realized that it, it is a cunning, baffling, and powerful illness, not just for the person who has it, but for the people all around. But I've also looked back on it and um, realized just how fortunate I am. I made it. I made it, and I should be dead many times. Uh, and so in, in writing the book, I guess I've come to a greater understanding of my own imperfections. That's one reason why the book is called Broken, Not Fixed. Um, 
I've looked back and seen my imperfections, but I've looked back and seen just how not lucky I was, but how blessed I was to have made it uh, to the point where my alcoholism has been the best thing that ever happened to me because I recovered from it and I've had the opportunity through that experience to give back some of what I've been given. And you have given back a lot, and I certainly appreciate that, and I know many other people do as well. And when you're, you were talking earlier, you were talking about um, alcoholism and addiction being a spiritual disease. Yes. I think that's something that sometimes mis, uh, there's misconceptions around that. But could you talk a little bit more about the spiritual part of sure. recovery? Sure, sure. It is a disease of the mind, the body, and the spirit. I mean, it, it does, when I put those substances into my body, it turned on a light switch in my brain, which I could not turn off on my own because um, my my brain processes those things differently. But addiction is much more than just a brain disease. That's where its origins lie. But some of the origins of addiction also lie in what I call a hole in the soul, the sense that um, I'm not good enough, that I need to be better than um, this, this struggle with my faith. I think a lot of people um, go through that. Most humans have a hole in the soul. It's just that... In the, in the, with a hole in the soul and a body and a mind that process these substances differently. That's pretty lethal. That's called alcoholism. And, um, and so the spiritual journey is, 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 is a vital part of the slide into the abyss and the climb back, which is why when we treat alcoholism, we have to treat more than just the brain disease. We have to treat the body and the spirit. Um, uh, that's what we do at Hazelden. I know m- many good programs, including yours, do the same thing. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a multidimensional disease. Just taking a pill for it uh, or even just praying about it isn't by themselves going to be enough that, that we need to take a holistic approach to treating the illness. And for me, that included the struggle with faith, this, this struggle with the power greater than myself, um, it also struggled with the with the sense of, of imperfection, the sense of my own defects of character. Um, it's, so it's a process. You know, I stopped drinking and taking drugs on the morning of October the 12th of 1994, but I'm still having to recover, and I will be uh, for the rest of my life a day at a time, and, and that means I have to address the body and the spirit pieces of this illness as well. How did your faith help you in your recovery? Well, you know, I do a lot of talking in churches and um, these days, and what I always say is that uh, uh, that my problem was less about believing in God. In the end, what I had to do was to trust in God. Big difference between believing and trusting, because believing is is something we all can come to. Uh, trusting means sort of taking that belief and saying, "Okay, I'm not in control. You do it, whatever you is." In this case, for me, that was God. Excuse me, and so um, so I had to stop believing and start trusting that God could do for me what I could not do for myself, and and that was to recover. Um, I have to be part of the recovery process, but it has to include a faith, a power greater than me, and it has to include a group, and it has to include the twelve steps, etc. So you know that didn't come easily. It's been a process, um, but every morning I get up now, I, I thank God for the gift of another day, and every night I go to bed, I thank God for the gift of the day. But I've just experienced, even if it was a bad day, it was still uh, a good day in the context of the fact that I should be dead. I have a disease that wants me dead, I, you know, uh, and, and yet I have the gift of another day. And so much of that is in letting go and learning how to let go and, and as you said, to trust, to trust that things are going to be okay or to trust that, you know, the, the cravings will go away or to trust that the right job will come along and um, and. That's a gift to be able to do that. And it doesn't always work out. I mean, I've always said that the only thing more difficult than living life sober is living life drunk. So if you take away the drunk part, we've still got to live life, whether we're alcoholics and addicts or or people who aren't afflicted by the disease. Life is filled with challenges. We have 9-11s. We have cancers. We have natural disasters. uh, We have bankruptcy. I mean, Whatever it is, we, we, we all have to go through life. And for addicts and alcoholics, it means going through life, trusting that it's going to be okay without using alcohol and the drugs. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. And it doesn't even mean it's going to be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It just means it's going to be okay. Which doesn't sound like a lot when you think about somebody who's, you know, in the throes of their addiction. Um, 
and being able to say to them, well, it's all going to be okay, that may be kind of hard for people to grasp in early recovery. Well, I, I'm in, in the book, I talk about what's happened to me since I got uh, sober, and I've, had, uh, I've been diagnosed with cancer. Um, I've had a son who struggled with a very severe birth defect. Um, I've had a wife who has struggled mightily with an eating disorder and depression, even though she's been sober from alcohol and other drugs for 18 years. I mean, we all have stuff going on that makes life very challenging. But for addicts and alcoholics especially, you have to face those challenges knowing that it's going to be okay as long as you don't pick up a drink or a drug. Okay doesn't mean <laughs> that it's going to end up la-da-da or on a happy note, but that it's going to be okay. And I think for many of us, defining okay means coming through it as sober people. And that that is really what it's all about, is just being able to let go and know that um, it's all going to work out, maybe not the way you want it to, but the way it's meant to. That's right, Mary. You know. um, this being Thanksgiving time, and uh, I know that gratitude is something that um, is on a lot of people's minds and agendas this month. And, uh, you know, when we need to think about gratitude, how how much does that play into being for people in recovery, to stay in recovery? Or? It's huge. It's huge. And the reason why it's huge is because gratitude is, is in direct proportion to humility. And when I have a high level of gratitude, I have a high level of humility. And when I have a high level of humility, I realize I'm here despite me, that I'm here despite a disease that wants me dead. And when I have that humility, I can stay sober today. Um, and as we are getting ready to close this hour that flew by, um, where, where can we see you? Where will you be in the next couple of months? Well, I'm all over the place. The best way to reach me is through my little website, williammoyers.com, or through hazelden.org. And hazelden is spelled H-A-Z-E-L-D-E-N.org. And then I can connect with you and tell you where I'm going to be. And I'd like to thank you once again for taking time in your very busy schedule to um, talk with us about stigma and discrimination and about your book, Broken. If you haven't gotten it, I really suggest you get it and read it. It's very heartfelt and a very real account of somebody's addiction and recovery. Thank you, William. Thanks a lot, Mary. you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.